Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. This, you can hear it in my voice, is a special COVID edition of the podcast, meaning I have COVID. Uh, the interview you're about to hear, I recorded, and in fact, I'm still speaking to you now, while suffering pretty acutely from a first-time COVID infection. I'd gotten pretty self-congratulatory about never having gotten it, and uh, I also happened to be short on a guest for this week, and I didn't feel like I could take a week off, so I called a friend. Specifically, I called Leslie Beanin and uh, invited her to come talk on the show, and she agreed to. Leslie is an expert in global health and public health policy. She's published more than 30 op-eds on COVID policy over the past two years, mostly around issues of children and school closures. I thought I would talk with her about what it means to get COVID at this point. It seems like most people have accepted pretty much that we're all going to get it eventually, but there's still a lot of confusion about what constitutes reasonable safety measures, who should get tested and why, who should get boosted and why, what you're supposed to do when you get a positive test. Since Leslie is actually the person who told me that I didn't need to get a second booster shot, she was the first person I called when I got sick. So we're going to talk about that in this conversation. Did she steer me wrong? We will find out. Oh, excuse me. Okay. I will also say that if you are a paying subscriber to this podcast, new Substack page, you'll have access to about 30 minutes of bonus content about a completely unrelated topic that uh, I discussed on a completely different podcast. That would be A Special Place in Hell, the podcast I do with Sarah Hader. Not too long ago, Sarah and I got into a discussion about fertility specifically whether young women were being adequately informed about the rate at which fertility wanes after a certain age. We talked about things like IVF and egg freezing and made some kind of off-the-cuff remarks about how that stuff maybe doesn't work as well as advertised. Leslie listened to that episode and thought we could have been a lot more nuanced in this discussion, and she wanted to correct a couple of things. So since I had her here for this conversation, I thought we would talk about the fertility stuff in the bonus content, especially because I think a lot of paying subscribers to this podcast also listen to A Special Place in Hell. So if you want to hear that and you're not yet a supporter of the show, you can go to megandaum.substack.com. Join at a couple of different levels. You can leave comments, join the listener community, all sorts of good stuff there. So that is that. This is a kind of unusual podcast episode because I'm pretty damn sick, but I think it's a valuable episode. So here's my conversation with Leslie Beanin. Leslie Beanin, welcome to The Unspeakable. Hi, Megan. Thanks for having me. It's truly an unspeakable episode today because I can barely speak. I have COVID and we're going to be talking about COVID. So this is going to be like a very meta, real-time kind of uh, conversation. But we'll start by saying you are on the faculty of Oregon Health Sciences and Portland State Joint School of Public Health. You teach global health and other courses, and you have studied uh, zoonotic disease transmission from wildlife to, to humans, including things like rabies, uh, a lot of bat viruses. You're here talking with me because you've written a lot of op-eds over the course of the pandemic. And my guess is that you didn't get into this field uh, in order to be an op-ed writer. Uh, and so I want to talk about that. That will be the focus of this conversation. But maybe we can start by talking about the beginning of the pandemic and what that was like for you, what your thoughts were as the story started to roll out. Because after all, you are somebody who have studied bat viruses, and suddenly we're being told that a virus that has been transmitted from bats will do un untold damage. So what was the first thing that went through your mind? Yeah. And just first, <clears throat> sorry that you're not feeling well. I think most everyone in America has been there at this point. Well, I wasn't. I was very smug about not having been here. So now here I am. Yeah, it's inevitable. I also have had COVID and I also feel really crummy. And I was expecting because I'm, you know, twice vaccinated and boosted that it would just be like a sniffle 
and I actually felt really lousy. Yeah. So the pandemic obviously started, you know, for real in March of 2019 and 20, 2020, 2020, sorry. It feels like 10 years ago. <laughs> That's true. And our governor closed all schools, public and private, I think on March 15th. Your governor in Oregon. Yeah. Kate Brown. Um, we were one of the few states that also closed private schools, like by order. California didn't, Maryland didn't. No, so those are the two states that were closed for as long as Oregon. Oregon, California, and Maryland are sort of tied at the bottom in terms of lengths of school closures. And Oregon was the only one that um, also our governor said that private schools could not open. So at the time, I was teaching at the School of Public Health, where I still am. And I want to say that the my views are not representative of the School of Public Health or Boylan State or uh, OHSU. They are entirely my own. So our schools didn't open and the kids were all home on Zoom. And I started, um, you know, talking to friends about what was happening and I was getting sort of more and more frustrated and really shocked, honestly, that there was really like no talk of getting them back open um, that spring. And then summer came and we had very low COVID here in the summer. And then in August, it, you know, ticked up. We had like a fairly sizable wave and our schools did not open that fall. And sometime over that summer when it became, you know, we got worried that schools weren't going to open in fall, a bunch of us got together and started talking about how we were going to advocate to get schools open. A bunch of us meaning meaning public health people? No, who were, parents. Oh, okay. Parents, yeah. And I would say public health people were really conspicuously absent from this conversation in a really, really alarming way. At that time... It seems like people were still feeling like that the virus was being transmitted from kids and that it wasn't safe for them to be in school. It wasn't safe for teachers. It wasn't safe for, you know, elderly family members that the kids would come home to. So are you saying that you knew something that we didn't? Well, I think a lot of people knew that schools had lower than community spread, actually, at that time. For one thing, data from Europe had shown that very clearly from the schools that opened in spring in Europe, which and Scandinavia, and Scandinavia, and then the schools that reopened here. I mean, all over, you know, Republican states, a lot of schools had opened and there was some pretty decent data. You know, the data on COVID are always a mess because it's so hard to control for other factors. But there were some studies indicating that spread in school was actually lower than the community spread. And so, you know, once you're saying it's lower than the community, what's the possible justification for keeping them closed? And was this reported in the media? Because honestly, like that, I don't remember that. I think it was really not reported in... I don't know what we're calling it these days, liberal media. The mainstream media. Well, was it reported in, say, medical journals or epidemiological journals? Yes, definitely. My friend and colleague, Tracy Hogue, did a study in Wisconsin, and they showed that spread was lower in schools and in the community. Even in California, did a big study looking at you know, spread in preschools and daycares because they were open the whole time. And there was almost no spread. So those data were definitely around and pretty much being ignored. I mean, there were some published in journals. Yeah, no, there were, there, and then this, you know, Sweden, Denmark, they were publishing all their data. Okay. Okay. So what did you think was going on? Well, Unfortunately, it became like a sign of being a good liberal to say that schools should be closed. So there was just, you know, so much politicization of the topic. And then, you know, frankly, that topic was weaponized, in my opinion, by educators unions to stay home. Um, and, you know, of course, there was legitimate fear. And that fear was 
really stoked by media, including, you know, all the big New York Times, the Washington Post, places like even, you know, like Forbes, I mean, places I'm sort of surprised by perpetuating that idea that school was this, you know, super spreader place that was going to kill everyone. Okay. And there was really no evidence of that because I see, this is why I want to talk with you. I, I feel like I've become, you know, over the last two years, I've like many people just com- so overwhelmed by the conflicting information that I've kind of just thrown up my hands. So are you saying we know for certain that in states where schools were not closed, there was no measurable difference or that, that, that really that there were, there were not cases of, I mean, there were not significant cases of kids going home and killing their grandparents, so to speak. There was absolutely no evidence that they were acquiring COVID at school in any greater rate than they were anywhere else. And in fact, there was fairly decent evidence that they would have been better off at school, right? Because most schools at the time were masked. Okay. And is that, why is that? And, and we're talking, they would have been masked at the school, but what is the reason that they would have been safer in the school than like in the community, however that's defined. Yeah. And let me just say there was very little evidence that masking at schools was doing a whole lot, but still, because school was a controlled environment, right? So most schools had some distancing. They were not mostly with old people at school. So, you know, when they, when schools were closed, who knows where those kids were? A lot of them were with grandparents or with neighbors or whatever. So it was completely uncontrolled who they were with. At least in school, they were mostly surrounded by other kids. And then, you know, the average age of teachers in America is like 40, low 40s, high 30s, to kind of depending on where you are. So this is not an old group of people. So for those reasons, you know, they were generally way better off at school than they would have been at home with neighbors, with grandparents, whatever. And then, like I said, a lot of daycares were open the whole time and there was not any more spread in daycares. In fact, there was less than in just within families, within communities. And I think that was established pretty early on. So, you know, you can't say no, nobody got COVID at school. Of course they did. And, you know, did they maybe bring it home? Sure. And the, the, when schools reopened in a lot of like Southern states in that August, because they open earlier, like in Oregon and California, it's, more like mid-September. Well, we open right around Labor Day here. But a lot of those Southern states school opened in early August. And there were all these reports that, oh, these teachers were dying. Well, they have no idea where those people got COVID. None whatsoever. So this was very, very distorted in the media. You know, yes, some teachers died of COVID. The evidence that they ever got COVID from kids really didn't exist. And like I said, it's not impossible, but you know, the main source of transmission was always within families or at work, you know, people who are working in close environments, which teaching honestly really isn't. I mean, it's where, you know, sure, when you teach little kids, they run up to you and stuff, but generally you're not like right on top of people like you are, say, if you work in a meatpacking plant or, or something like that. So it was not a particularly high risk environment. Okay. So you started speaking out about this. You were talking with other parents, and how did you sort of emerge as somebody who was going to be vocal about this? Reluctantly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I knew this would be an unpopular opinion where I worked. So, but I honestly couldn't help myself. And I started being like interviewed as soon as I started speaking out, local media would interview me or because I was actually talking about data and looking at a lot of published data, a lot of published papers. I started connecting with other people who were looking at COVID data on Twitter. That was like the first time I'd ever been on Twitter. And then with some local people here in Oregon who were also looking at the data. And we started saying like, wow, just the the mainstream kind of narrative on this is so divorced from the data. Why is this happening? It it was so baffling, honestly. And why is nobody talking about, you know, the unintended consequences of closing schools, like mental health issues, academic dropout, and 
widening disparities amongst students who have resources and students who don't, whoever that is, racially, by income, whatever, those conversations just suddenly were like totally taboo. And so what was the first piece you wrote? And did you get in, did you get heat for it? What was that like? We did get some heat for it. The first piece I published was in Stat News. And it was, I had reached out to um, Monica Gandhi, who was one of the, you know, very sane people talking about COVID and kids and school and said, you know, hey, I've done some analysis looking at uh, hospitalizations in kids with my colleague here in Oregon, who's a data analyst, very, very good data guy, happened to just work at Nike, was not in health. I mean, not just work at Nike, he, he deals with data every day, but like he was not in public health. And we're reading these articles in the Washington Post and elsewhere saying that, you know, that all these kids are being hospitalized for COVID and we're looking at the data and it's just not true. Are you interested in writing this piece with us? And she said, yes. So we published that in Stat News and it was about the distortion in media about kids' risk from COVID. And so the the specific distortion that was happening was that places like the Washington Post and sort of big media would publish these headlines that said, percentage of kids hospitalized for COVID doubles or whatever. Right. So it was extremely misleading because there were such a low number of kids hospitalized with COVID. And there was an uptick in cases at this time. That if it went from like two per 100,000 to four per 100,000, you could say it doubled. But it was still just unbelievably low. So this was at the time when like Missouri and Michigan were having big surges of COVID. And they really were. But kids were not particularly affected. And they were not any more affected than they'd ever been. And even back then, they were testing everybody for COVID. So there was a lot of incidental hospitalizations, right? These kids were not being hospitalized because they were so sick with COVID, most of them. They were being hospitalized for something else. They were hospitalized for other, just so we're clear about this, right? They were hospitalized for other things and then they would automatically give a COVID test if you're in the hospital and if it comes out positive, you are then classified as having COVID. Yes, and that's still going on today. Very few places are separating those hospitalizations. So just yesterday or the day before, I saw some COVID person on Twitter saying that there were 600 people dying due to COVID per day. This just is not correct. You know, the vast majority of those are dying from something else. Right. So is it, yeah, I mean, I guess for a second, we can, we can jump ahead to the present moment. So, I mean, you hear these things like, if somebody dies with COVID, that is automatically classified as a COVID death. Is that true? Yes. That is true. Yes, but but some hospital systems will break it out, right? So they they do know. And even if you report it separately, like King County in Washington has actually done a pretty good job reporting them separately, but the vast majority of county health departments are not reporting them separately. And it, okay, now the conspiracy theory is that they're actually getting money from like from the government if the more COVID deaths they have. Was that ever true? They're not getting money for COVID deaths, what they get money for is COVID tests. So I wrote a piece with my colleague, Marjorie Smilkinson, on why the state of emergency should be ended. So under the state of emergency, Medicare and Medicaid reimburse hospitals for every positive COVID test with a 20% bonus. Because it's expensive to have COVID patients, right? Like you're supposed to isolate them, you have to do all this other stuff. And it is a drain on hospitals. That's for sure. However, the vast majority of these people are not there for COVID. So they're getting the 20% bonus because they're testing everyone. It is a really perverse incentive to keep testing. Okay, so you're saying that they would not keep testing people if they weren't getting this. But wouldn't they just want to test anybody who came in any to the hospital regardless? Well, I don't, I'm not saying they wouldn't test anyone. What they should be testing is people who have respiratory symptoms. Okay. But when you come in with a broken leg, do you need a COVID test? 
I don't know. I mean, I think that's questionable. Considering where we are now, there are a lot of, you can't go to the theater in some places without getting a COVID test. So I'm imagining if you're going into a hospital where there are people who are sick and immunocompromised, there is an argument to be made for giving a COVID test. But this is going to lead to like a broader conversation about what is the point of testing at this point? Who needs to be tested? How often? And I want to talk about vaccines and all of that. But actually, I want to back up back to the beginning of the pandemic here. Because you have studied zoonotic disease transmission, I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about the line that this was coming from bats, that the lab leak theory at that time was completely considered fringe and bananas. Well, actually, to be accurate, it was like okay to talk about for maybe three or four weeks. (laughs) And then suddenly that was categorized as uh, a dangerous conspiracy theory. So like as a person who knows about animal diseases, what did you make of that? I mean, I always thought both were plausible. The the idea that there had been a natural spillover was certainly plausible. Mm -hmm. And the fact that these, the, you know, Wuhan laboratory was working with these coronaviruses and bats the idea that it could have come from there is also plausible. And I just don't think we know right now, but there has, you know, there hasn't been a lot of data supporting the idea of a natural spillover, which doesn't mean there wasn't one. When you say natural spillover, are you talking about actually from the the bats or are you talking about? Okay. Natural spillover, meaning that this, you know, COVID existed in bats somehow, either through eating them, a wet market, or just somebody encountering a bat that that occurred without anything happening in a laboratory. Right. And I know you're not an expert on this particular issue, but, you know, I've had people like Alina Chan on, on the podcast a, a while back. And, you know, she says, well, you know, we can't, there's, we, we can't know for sure, but it just seems like there has been to my knowledge, there has been no, like you just said, there's been no direct evidence of any connection from somebody encountering a, a bat. Like they very much want that to be the case, but like the was like the closest bat with this virus was a thousand miles away or something. And meanwhile, the Wuhan lab is down the street. It just, yeah, I agree. There have they haven't found the evidence to support a a natural spillover. But again, like, you know, people looked for years and years to try to find a host, a natural host for Ebola, for example. You know, that can can take a really long time. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. 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 Fair enough. But then, you know, if you go out and sample any significant number of bats, for example, you're you're finding rabies in those bats. Like rabies exists in bat reservoirs. It's very easy to find. So if this were like a really something that was circulating as a reservoir in bats, they will find it eventually. Okay. Okay. I mean, it does, it just does seem like Occam's razor that it would be from the the lab. I don't think any serious person thinks it was anything but an accident. I think that's another thing is people get confused. If you say that. Yeah. Like, Oh, it's a bite. It was like a bite. Yeah, no, it's not something. a, no, no I mean, I, yeah. That, yeah. That's, I it's like think a it was, was it, you know, it was, it was an accident, but it just seems to me anyway, it seems highly, uh, highly likely that this came from, came from a lab, but we don't have to necessarily get into that. Okay. So, all right. So you're just going along, you're, you're having your, your, your career and, and global health and studying the stuff that you study. And suddenly because you've got kids in the schools, you're speaking out about this. You are somebody who knows how to analyze data. So you're saying like, Hey, we're not actually looking at this properly. The media is not reporting on this, right? So then what's, what's the next frontier for you? Like, are you, are you, you know, still talking about schools or are you then concerned with sort of masking and lockdown policies more broadly? Well, I really focused on schools primarily. And, you know, masking was part of that because here in Oregon, our mask mandate in schools wasn't lifted till this past March, March of last spring. Um, yeah, and some schools even started this year with mask mandates. Actually, quite a few. So they were interrelated for sure. I didn't really ever talk much about things like business lockdowns. Yeah, it was sort of outside my wheelhouse. And, and even though the data collected on schools was really bad, you know, really not robust, like it's very, it could have been done so much better. 
but it wasn't. But the data on like what was happening in businesses was even worse. You know, people say things like, oh, going to a restaurant is is high risk. Like, well, how do you know? I mean, did you sample everyone in that restaurant? Like it was all just complete conjecture. Right. Well, it seems completely arbitrary. So yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not the first person to uh, comment on the just strangeness of having to wear a mask as you walk from the <laughs> the entrance of the restaurant to your table and then you can take it off. It's it's so like what do you have to say about that? If you could sort of say to the public, this is what you don't have to do, this is what you maybe should do, where would you even start? Um yeah, that's a good question. So much of it just has to do with your individual risk tolerance, right? Like I saw I know you follow Ann Bauer on Twitter. She's a writer. I think she lives in Minneapolis. You know, she had a picture on Twitter. She was like, here's my husband on the roof cleaning out the gutters. The neighbors are having a tea party outside within 95s. <laughs> are either of those things wrong? No. Like if your individual risk tolerance says to do these things and you're not imposing it on others, go ahead. I, I have no issue. I personally don't think it's worth the detriment to my communication and my socialization to mask outside because I find it annoying and distracting and a barrier to communication. But if other people don't, you know, by all means, we should go ahead. But what do we know about COVID being transmitted outdoors without a mask at this point? I mean, honestly, we don't know a whole lot. It, it seems unlikely because outdoors the air is flowing and the wind is blowing. But, you know, again, some of the later variants are pretty transmissible. But I, I would say that more to what we were saying at the beginning is just inevitable for almost everybody. You're going to get COVID. So what is the point of masking outdoors so you delay it two more months? Is that worth it? You're just older. Right. So what are the incentives? What are the incentives for local and state governments to say, this is what you have to do. Like, what are they getting out of it, in your opinion? What are they getting out of it? That's a good question. I mean, I would say outside of the healthcare setting, they're getting very little out of it other than signaling to their citizens that they, you know, are a certain political tribe. Now, within healthcare, I think there's some arguments to be made. I personally think that the root healthcare, routine healthcare, should not be requiring mass any for all the re reasons we're just talking about. Like when I go to my doctor for a checkup, I don't think I should have to mask. I think it should be my choice to mask. And my doctor, if my doctor wants to mask, that's up to her. Obviously, there are settings with very high risk people where you would make a different calculation. You know, if you're getting a bone marrow transplant or something like that, sure, ask, having providers wear N95s, that seems like a good idea. But those risks can be ascertained, right? Like not everyone is high risk, not every setting, even in healthcare is high risk. So I would say if you have really a condition where you truly are truly high risk, and I think all these lot of people with, you know, sort of asthma and gluten allergies don't fall into that category. Then it makes sense to take a lot of precautions. I would say that those people were always in that position. For some reason, now we think it's different. It, it's not different. There were always respiratory pathogens that would have been very, have very major consequences for that. And so this one is different because it's been politicized. Yes. And it's just so top of mind. And then we have these home tests where, you know, we hadn't, we didn't really have that for flu. It wasn't possible to be constantly testing yourself or for, you know, any of the respiratory viruses. It just wasn't an option. So that's really, really changed how people approach it. And if you have low risk tolerance or you're nervous or whatever, you have that ability. It just has changed the ballgame so profoundly. I'm just trying to understand what the incentives are, though. Like, I, okay, for the hospital, yes, we understand they're getting they're getting money from what did you say, Medi Medicaid or Medicare? Yeah, from CMS. So from Medicare and Medicaid, they get a reimbursement. That is going to stop, though. So I believe Biden ended the state of emergency, so that will put an end to that. So that, and then, so do you think that they will stop testing people as much? Yes. Okay. But I'm just trying to understand, like, 
why would okay let's talk about for instance uh, a university you know making you know constantly shutting 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 classes down making kids mask and test constantly what are they getting out of these kind of protocols if i knew the answer to that question megan i would be a millionaire i simply <laughs> cannot understand it you have the healthiest people in america on your campus okay i think a lot of it is being driven by the faculty like faculty demanding this stuff. And, you know, a good friend of mine said, and I, I do think there's something to this. I mean, we talked about this, you and I have talked about this a little bit before. There's a segment of liberal Democrats who have replaced whatever religion was doing in their life with anxiety. And it feeds, and that anxiety now has this outlet that's been validated. Let's all just be as anxious as possible. You know, we'll demand to teach from home. And, and I think that a lot of people like staying home. I mean, the, the greatest revelation for me about the pandemic, aside from the fact that a significant portion of this country seems to have uncontrolled anxiety, was how many people didn't like their jobs. Right. And don't want to go back to them in any face-to-face -face capacity. Right. Yeah. I mean, I know we, we've talked about that anxiety has become a religion, that concept. It's, it's, I think about it a lot. I mean, I think that it's obviously, you would be the first to say it's a lot more nuanced than that. And it's a lot more complex than that. I mean, but getting back to the professors for a minute here, because I, I think the timeline is important. So like, okay, in the beginning, before there were vaccines, I can see how if you're like a middle-aged professor on a campus, you're you know, regardless of your political leanings, you might be worried about a whole bunch of kids who have been out partying and not caring about COVID whatsoever, you know, descending upon your campus and possibly getting you sick. Okay. Like that, that does make sense. But are you saying that there's a sort of more kind of, even, even after the, now even post-vaccine, this is continuing? A lot of classes that were moved online have remained online. I mean, even, you know, at my school, a lot of people requesting to stay online. Um, either they, they say they have a health condition or, you know, maybe they do. I don't know. Or I'm not sure what reason they're offering. But, I mean, I have talked to administrators at my school who say that very not enough people are saying they want to teach in person. And they're saying that they are concerned about their health and that's the reason. I guess so. Yes. I think that's, I think that's the proffered reason. Now, like in a city like Portland, right, where the undergraduate campus where I teach is downtown, downtown is a pretty big mess. People aren't psyched to come back to downtown. You're talking about homeless and people yeah. in the street. and homelessness and, and crime, and, crime. And like parking your car, you know, it feels... Like, oh, is my car going to be vandalized or broken into? Um, even like in our parking lot for school, a couple of people have been like carjacked at gunpoint, stuff like that. So it doesn't feel super great to be there, although I was there recently and it's been fine. But that's got to not be helping. And then also a lot of the students during COVID, they moved out of downtown. Because why would you stay downtown? If everything's online, it's very expensive. So they moved out to cheaper suburbs and now they don't want to commute in out. And that I totally get, but it is an issue in terms of like bringing back the campus community, right? So this is so interesting. So actually what we're doing is using COVID as an excuse for other things. Like it's easier to blame it on COVID than to say, hey, I actually would rather live in this kind of place than that kind of place. Or admitting that you actually don't want to be with people in person. Mm -hmm. And it's such a vicious cycle because the fewer people are downtown, the more, the harder it is to revitalize downtown. Right. So like a lot of the city employees aren't back at work and the city hasn't said that they have to come back to work. I think they said they have to come back one day a week, but they're not enforcing it. And then a bunch of the city employees wrote this letter to the city saying like, we're not your guinea pigs to revitalize downtown and we don't want to come back to work. 
no, in my opinion, the city should force them back. And and I do get that argument, but also like your job was there, you know, you weren't hired to work from home. I mean, I don't know how you solve this quandary, honestly. Right. So, I mean, I'm just trying to understand too, like not to try to figure out like who is they and who's controlling and like as if somebody's pulling the strings, obviously it's a lot of moving pieces, but like the media created hysteria because that sold, that that was a moneymaker. Okay. And so then the public receives the hysteria, internalizes it, and then anxiety, people who, any sort of pre-existing anxiety now gets wrapped around this issue. I mean, I have noticed this in people around me. Like they had anxiety to begin with, but they felt it was either under control or they felt some kind of obligation to control it, to, you know, be a grown up and go through the world and manage their anxiety. And now this is sort of, um, I mean, excuse that sounds a little bit accusatory, but this is uh, an opportunity to kind of lean into your anxiety. And it's, it's, I just think this is such an interesting issue and it's really hard to talk about because I, even as I'm listening to the words come out of my mouth, I feel like I'm being mean, you know, because some of these are my really good friends who are like this. Yeah, no, same. I mean, not only is their anxiety acceptable, it's valorized. Yes. Yes. It's a virtue. It's a virtue. But like, how long is that going to go on? Do you think it, this is just indefinite? Because I, I feel like people are just starting to catch on and it's, people are getting, there's less and less patience about it, around it. I think a small minority will never let it go. You know, and unfortunately, like that's a big part of Twitter. So, I mean, lots of people have talked about this. Like if you look at like the comedians on Twitter, you would think that we're all still living in 2020. March 2020. But if you go other places, probably it's just not like that. Unfortunately, where I live, there's a lot of that just, you know, in Portland. But even in Portland, people are are dropping it to some extent. And I, I would say academia will be one of the last places <laughs> where it's dropped because it's all wrapped up in other things, you know, being virtuous, showing that you care about communities of color, which of course is important. I mean, nobody is like, or nobody I work with, I'm sure is just like, screw communities of color. We don't care if you die. Like, but what is the connection between masking and caring about communities of color? Well, that many people in communities of color are more high risk for either by virtue of work or their health status for other reasons. Okay. Okay. So I see a lot of families with very young children walking around with everybody wearing a mask outdoors in in the park. I'm in California. Yeah, but I see it in New York as well. What is that about? Presumably the kids can't get vaccinated. So maybe the parents are taking this precaution because it's the one precaution they can take. But what do you make of that kind of scene. Yeah. Well, they can get vaccinated now down to six months old. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I think it's absolutely bonkers. I mean, I just look at that and I, I can't get my mind around because first of all, those kids were very, very safe to begin with. Now that they can get vaccinated, there's almost zero concern unless you have like a seriously overweight child. Mm -hmm. No, these are very healthy looking people. The thing when I see the kids, I feel like there's an element of like the parents think it's setting a good example. Like they're, te- they're teaching their children to be considerate of others. Yes. Like they're all doing this as a family and it's sort of just like, well, in this family, we believe kind of thing. But like, I, it's interesting though, because I see it, I don't, I don't see it just among like kind of upper middle class white people driving Volvos kind of thing. I see a lot of like Hispanic families with little kids who are masked. And that's made me wonder if maybe like there are people who they're higher risk within the family or if there's just a kind of distrust of the medical system. Like, have you noticed that? And do you have any sort of observations or thoughts about the kind of demographic breakdown? Um. I mean, they have noticed some Hispanic families masking kids, and I don't really know why that would be. 
particularly. I mean, whether or not, you know, if they're vaccinated, I can't see any reason to mask at all. And even if they weren't, I couldn't really, but like it, it would make more sense to me if they weren't vaccinated. So I really don't know. I mean, for sure, you know, a lot of Hispanic low-income people were higher risk because of their jobs. But I think at this point that that's probably not no longer true. I mean, if you made a choice not to get vaccinated, you're probably not masking. I, I don't know. I don't know, though. I can't say for sure. I mean, I remember this uh, Latino couple that were profiled in the newspaper here, and they both had died of COVID. And there was a picture of the family. They were quite overweight, you know, large. But the article said that they masked all the time, but they were afraid to get vaccinated, right? Like that they were afraid that the vaccine would aggravate their other health conditions and they both had like diabetes. Oh, okay. Okay. So to me, this is like classic example of an absolute catastrophe of public health messaging. Because what these people heard was that masks work to the extent that they trusted a mask over getting vaccinated, which almost certainly would have saved their lives. Right. And so, okay, let's talk about vaccines now. Why were people so mistrusting of them to begin with? Is it because of Trump? Like, what's the sort of original sin here in terms of people's confidence level? I wish there were a simple answer to that question. And I think it's just so complicated. I mean, some of it definitely was that, you know, there wasn't a lot of data. Okay, that's a reasonable concern. A lot of it definitely was political. That, you know, I mean, Trump supported Operation Warp Speed. Obviously, like that was developed under his administration. I know, he could have taken credit for it. It's remarkable. Uh, His strategy was perplexing. He could have. And it's really, really sad that when Biden was elected, that there was an attempt to give credit because I think that would have made a difference. I mean, obviously, I don't know. I can't. To give, to give credit to Trump as a way of encouraging his, um, his base to get vaccinated. Yeah, that's just petty, it seems to me. Petty. And I think it really killed a lot of people. I mean, like beyond petty. But that didn't happen. And, and, you know, Trump sort of waffled. I mean, he, he, he did take credit for Operation Warp Speed, which, you know, justifiably so. But then at times he seemed dismissive of vaccination. You know, I think he said at some point he was vaccinated. So there was that, but also, I mean, just the rhetoric about vaccination was so terrible. You know, that it was a moral choice. If you cared about other people, you would do it. Um, You know, if you didn't, you were just uh, like an asshole, (laughs) that kind of thing. I mean, it just didn't have to be like that. And I think that's still happening today, even though, you know, very clearly now the vaccines don't prevent transmission of the current variants. I still see this kind of discussion. Right. And uh, like, why was there so little discussion about natural immunity? I honestly don't know why this was treated as if we didn't know that not you know being naturally infected conferred robust immunity it just makes no i guess they were scared people would say like oh i had covid so i don't need to get vaccinated right i mean it's just again you don't want to you know like like our friend lucy mcbride said you're trying to build an airplane in the air so you don't want to point fingers sort of gratuitously but it's just where, as a person who you understand public health, like where does public health messaging come from? Like if it's coming from on high, is there some cabal of people who are sitting around saying, well, we don't trust the public to be smart enough to understand this. So we're going to tell them that they have to wear masks all the time, regardless. They don't understand natural immunity. We just, we, we cannot have any kind of complication in our messaging. Is that what it comes down to? Or are there other incentives? That's definitely a lot of it. I mean, so where does public health messaging come from? You know, obviously the CDC creates a certain amount of the messaging. And where that is crafted, I honestly don't really know. 
I mean, does Rochelle Walensky come up with her own talking points? Does Fauci tell her what to say? I, I don't really know. So, and then, you know, that trickles out to county health departments, state health departments, et cetera. And some states will treat what the CDC says as gospel. Other states will sort of be like, meh, thanks, but no thanks. You know, we, we're very, very fragmented here. And one of the, I know I've been writing a piece with my colleague, Marjorie Smilkinson recently, we actually haven't had any luck getting it published, but one of our points is that to, to look at what happened with schools and say, well, Sweden was open, you know, Denmark was open, and think that that's any template for the U.S. It, it isn't because we don't have a national control of schools, of public health, of anything, right? Like, I mean, I, I do think the CDC messaging in public health is pretty important, but but particularly on schools, we don't have any one committee or body of people who can reopen our schools. This is all locally decided. So no place in Scandinavia or really Europe is that model for us. Back to the vaccines for a second. What about big pharma? What about the idea that Pfizer wants us to have as many vaccines as we can possibly withstand? Well, Pfizer is obviously trying to make money. You know, the role of the FDA, however, is to come up with recommendations that don't reflect Pfizer's profit motive. And I would say, or Moderna's or whoever, that the FDA has fallen down on that job. I mean, I don't think you can, on some level, fault a large pharmaceutical company for having a profit motive, right? Like, that is what they do. That's why we have regulatory agencies. But unfortunately, they're very intertwined now. Yeah. and. You know, the I, the fact that there are all these effects from the vaccine, the myocarditis is one of them. People are only now starting to give any credence to the effect it had on women's menstrual cycles. That's a real thing. Like, I, I can tell you that that was a, that's a real thing. Like, do, do you have thoughts about that? How many how many vaccines shots have you had? So I had two and then my employer required me to get a booster. The first booster. And they did not require the second booster, and I did not get it. Okay. And why is that? Because I don't believe in a low-risk person such as myself, there's any added benefit. I've already had COVID. I have had a booster and plus two shots. And somebody I really trust on this is Paul Offit, who you know has, was on the uh, advisory committee he was one of the people who, I think the only, perhaps the only person who voted no on the recommendation for to recommend the booster for all age groups. And he was like, no, no, we should recommend for high risk and the very, very elderly, as he calls them, which is like over 80. And I'm not in that category. So, and, and I also think there's some not good evidence, but maybe possibility that when you've had COVID, you actually make your immunity worse by boosting because you have seen the actual COVID proteins and you have antibodies to it. And then when you boost, you're sort of invigorating a version of immunity that's maybe not as up to date as your natural infection. So that's something that some people are looking at. It's a very hard question to get to the bottom of because of who is boosting and who isn't, right? So when you look at, say, hospitalization data and some hospitalization data may be saying like, wow, these people who got another booster have more hospitalization than people who didn't. Now, why is that? Are they getting boosted because they're sick? Are they getting boosted because they were frail or to begin with? That's certainly possible. And that's a question we're trying to tease out right now. Causation versus correlation thing. Okay, but if you haven't had COVID, what is the harm of just getting as many boosters as you can? Well, because the booster data on boosters shows that immunity is very fleeting, right? So maybe like a month or two months, then you're going to get an infection. Now, 
you're protected from hospitalization? Yes, but perhaps not any better than you were with just one booster. We just don't know because these data aren't being collected. So I would say you're very well protected by your initial vaccine series and perhaps your first booster if you have a comorbidity or you're old. That's really all you need. That, I just don't think the data are out there showing there's a big benefit. And with any intervention, there's always you know a slight risk of whatever. I mean, we just don't know. But what about the idea? People would make the argument that like there's a flu, there's a different flu strain every year, and you should just get a flu shot every year. Does it not work the same way with these boosters? It might. I just don't think they've collected those data. I mean, right? The new booster wasn't tested in humans. It was only tested in mice, and even that was pretty few. And I'm not saying it causes a problem. I'm just saying we don't know. So the, the new flu vaccines are also tested in mice every because they were tested in humans originally. Um, they're not necessarily like retested in humans, but they also do, you know, a pretty complicated procedure to like match the strain based on what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere, et cetera. And I honestly don't know how good of a match the new booster is for the circulating strains. I mean, maybe it's good. I, Paul Offit was recently on Zubin Damania's podcast, and I think he mentioned the fact that the new booster wasn't actually more protective for infection than the old booster for infection. So I don't, and they, I don't think they had enough people in that trial to look at hospitalization. So wait, not protective for infection as opposed to what? Not more protective than the old booster. Oh, okay. So this was a randomized trial where some people got the new booster, some people got the old booster, and then they went forward in time and actually more people in the new booster group became infected with COVID. And they were not hospitalized more. So maybe that's meaningless, but it, it didn't seem to be more protective against just an infection. But again, these were like very small studies. And right. And just, I feel like I've lost count. So how many boosters have there been? There, there were the, the initial two vaccines that everybody got. Okay. And then there was a booster. And then there's a booster after that. That's it, right? There's only That's okay, the new, the there's two boosters. Okay. So when I, got, when I got COVID last week, you were the first person I texted because you were the one that said there was no need to get the second booster. If you're healthy. So yeah. I didn't get it. If you're right, right. And um, I have never, I, I don't get sick. I've only been sick one other time. And I was extremely, when I get sick, I get really sick. So I don't consider myself a, a, a sick person. And so I got a little, I got a little cavalier. I thought I had avoided COVID all this time. I did not get the second booster. And so now that when I got COVID last week, I texted you and I said, what was the reason again that I wasn't supposed to get it? Right. And you said something, I would have just gotten it in three in three weeks later? Like, what do you mean by that? I mean that your booster immunity against infection would have worn off very quickly. Okay. So it would have bought me a little bit of time is yes. what you're saying? Yes. Okay. But I don't believe you would have been better protected against hospitalization than I'm assuming you got vaccinated originally. Yeah. Yeah. I've had three shots total. So I think your protection against hospitalization would not have been improved with another booster. It might have warded off infection for a month. Is that worth it? I don't know. You're just a month older. Okay. Because I, I don't want to get it in a month. I, this is actually a great time for me to have this. So yeah, there um, you go. in a way, that's good. <laughs> now you'll hopefully have a, you know, some protection against infection for some amount of time, depending on what happens with other variants. Right. And so, okay. So now this idea that I'm going to have natural immunity, I might, is it like a superpower? Because now that I've had three shots plus natural immunity, what does that mean for me walking around in the world? Yeah. I think nobody knows the answer to that because it just depends on whether variants keep, keep changing. You know, what we saw last year was that the variants definitely escaped for mild infection, right? So like having been vaccinated didn't give you protection against a mild infection. It did for a while, but then it didn't. So now we don't know what will happen. I mean, is it possible that in the winter, there'll be some wholly different variant that even your COVID infection right now doesn't protect you from? Sure, it could happen. I personally don't think it's super likely, but I don't know. I'm not, you know, I have no power to predict the future in that regard. 
Is it is it possible that I had an infection previously and just didn't have any symptoms? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I've I've seen different things about how many people are completely asymptomatic, ranging from like seventeen percent to thirty percent. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's definitely possible. Okay, so like for instance, I was traveling. I was with a group of people in person for several days. And then I, the second I, I flew home and the second I got home, I got sick. So in, in a scenario like that, I've, I've told all of them that I have COVID. None of them seem to, which I'm glad about. But like, what's, what do you think are like the, the ethics of disclosing uh, one's, one's illness if, if, if we get sick? Do I need to go and tell every single person I came into contact with that I'm that I now sound like this. They'll, they'll all listen to this podcast, of course, so they'll, they'll know this way. But what's, what's the right thing to do? I mean, no. I would say do whatever you would have done before. Would you have called everyone you knew and been like, hey, guys, I have the flu? <laughs> Probably not. Um, no, I mean, no. Yeah, right. But I, you know, I, I felt like if I didn't say something, I was like going to get in trouble or something. Yeah, I know. I wish we would like dispense with that whole judgment. I mean, if there was somebody on that gathering who was undergoing chemo, okay. I mean, but then should... Well, then they should have been wearing a mask. Would and they, they have really got, you know, I guess I'm questioning their decision right. to be there. <laughs> right. Right. Or I feel like if they were there, they're not that worried about it. Right. Now, this is a conversation that, you know, I've written tons of pieces about college campuses and what's happening on campus and this whole like, well, what about the students who are vulnerable? You know, does everyone have to mask because there's one student who has an immune disorder? I would say that that person is in the exact same position they were in five years ago. And nobody did anything. Now, you can say, well, were the colleges remiss that they didn't care about that person? I mean, maybe. Well, five years ago, there wasn't COVID, though. What do you mean? But there was something. I mean, we've always had respiratory infections, right? And if somebody is severely immunocompromised, I think it's reasonable to say maybe a college campus isn't a good trade-off for you. I mean, you are around a lot of people. You're living in a congregate setting. You know, I'm okay with colleges requiring a COVID vaccination, I guess, because like they require, you know, meningitis and measles and these other things. Okay, fair enough. Um, But beyond that, asking everyone to change their lives for a very, very small minority of people, I I think as a society, we kind of always said, that's not reasonable. Right. And those people, to some extent, have to make decisions about what they're willing to expose themselves to. And if you really feel like I can't be in a dorm unless everyone's masked at all times on their way to walk to the shower, you know, yeah, maybe an online program is a better decision for you. And I don't mean that in this way, like no one cares about you. It's just, it's not possible to protect from every respiratory infection in a congregate setting with hundreds of people. Right. But I want to go back to this, like, at this point, what should people do when they get sick? Because so say I was with somebody, I was in a car with somebody and I tell them, okay, now I'm sick. This person, do they, they feel like they need to test to make sure they don't, even though they don't have any symptoms so that they can make sure they don't pass it on to say their their elderly parents when they go and visit them, for example. Like, is that a reasonable concern that they would have? I think the unreasonable part is thinking that you know who around you has COVID and who doesn't. So that's the part that you don't know and you can't control. And SARS-CoV-2 is highly infectious. So it's reasonable to think you've been exposed at any time. I was just talking to my sister about this, actually, because she was saying like, oh, so-and-so got it on the plane. And I'm like, they have no idea where they got it. You can say that, but you don't know. It's, you know, some percentage of the population at any given time is carrying COVID around, whether or not they're coughing and sneezing or they're just getting over an infection or they don't know they have an infection. So if you're going to see your parents and you're really worried about it, no, no matter what you've been doing, sure, test. Totally independent of whether you saw Megan down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that shouldn't be the defining factor. That's like a total red herring. But it just, okay, but wait, but they know if they were exposed to me and I definitely have it, 
why shouldn't they be more concerned than if they were just walking around in the community, not knowing? I mean, it's a, it is a known, it is a known, I am a known quantity of being infected. Yeah, but it's irrelevant because if you're that worried about it, whatever you think your possible exposure was, then you should just take a test. You should never assume you weren't exposed. If, if it's truly like you're going to visit someone who cannot take that risk, just assume you've been exposed. That's the only thing that makes any sense. Okay. Do you think that we're going to move past this? Like, wh- how do we get to, we're not going to get to zero COVID. Is it possible to get to like zero COVID testing just as a, as a hobby, which is kind of what we have now? Oh, Lord, I hope so. I mean, I do think the employers and stuff are going to stop paying for it. So that's going to make a difference, right? I mean, when it's not just constantly available. Well, right. Because I mean, we got mailed tests, you know, they're sitting in my medicine cabinet because they arrived in the mail. Right. So when all the free testing goes away, and of course, it really wasn't free. I mean, the Biden administration paid for those. And, you know, your insurance is passing it on or your the hospital or whatever when you go in and someone tests you that cost is being passed on. Do you, you know sadly Megan I don't think this is going to go away. What I think is that there will be ever more testing for all kinds of things point of care or at home and it might become a part of life and then I think there'll just be people who just don't do it people who are just like whatever, and then people who are worried and who will do it. And I think there's going to be some split. Like, for example, the NIH just released a funding call to develop cheaper COVID tests, like at-home testing devices for COVID testing and or other pathogens. So this technology is going to be accelerating really, really quickly. Wow. I mean, it feels like it's like AI, but it's sort of, it's like a way of tracking us. How's that feel? Yeah. Yeah. It's concerning for sure. I mean, it does have, you know, uses though. Like, would you potentially be able to detect mutants, you know, mutations and variants earlier? Sure. Is it useful to know whether you have the flu or COVID? I guess, sure. Or something else. Um, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. It's a really complicated question. Like, do I, part of me feels like, is more information always better? No. But on the other hand, you know, would it help certain populations? Yes, probably. I think that's probably safe to say. And it would, you know, potentially help things say like antibiotic resistance where people don't know what they have and they're taking an antibiotic and, you know, why they have a virus, like for that kind of thing. Sure. That's important. But okay. Also, like, how do we even collect the data? Like, I am not going to call the Department of Health and report myself as having COVID. How do they even count it anymore? Everybody's just taking home tests. Yeah, and Monica Gandhi and I wrote a piece um, that the New York Times published, and then we also wrote one in Time about um, how tests, how positivity data was just gone off the rails. Like we should stop looking at it because of this, because so many people are testing outside the health system. It wasn't a useful predictor anymore. And we said at the time that we should use hospitalization data to look at community spread. And then eventually, even that became kind of not useful because of incidental testing. So yeah, those are really, those are complicated issues. I mean, definitely, I would say one of the biggest failures of the pandemic has been our shoddy data collection. Like the fact that hospitals weren't asked to separate that out from the beginning, you know, like they can tell if some- Why weren't they asked that? I do not know. I do not know. I mean, like Massachusetts, eventually they took 10,000 COVID deaths off of their, you know, stats because they said they, when they recorded their COVID deaths, they said anyone who dies within a year of a COVID diagnosis will be counted as a COVID death. A year. 
And then, so they, you know, had some number of COVID deaths and kind of recently they, they removed 10,000 of them on the basis of that year, you know, saying like, yeah, these people weren't really COVID deaths, but why, why weren't we keeping better track? I do not know. I mean, for example, people in hospitals who were, were saying like, well, if you're not on oxygen, you're probably not there for COVID. Not, I'm not talking about ventilation, just like a flow by. Like you came in, you were in respiratory distress, somebody gave you just supplemental oxygen. You could literally just look at that and have a pretty good idea of who was actually there for COVID, right? Which would not be hard to do. It's a simple code that you run on your EMR. So stuff like that. Like why why wasn't that done? I don't I don't have a good answer. I mean, definitely some of it was that hospitals were getting money. I don't know if that's the only answer. Well, we've been talking a while and I've been, I, I can't talk much more. Um, we're going to do some bonus content on an unrelated matter. But before I explain to people what that is, is there anything else you want to mention uh, when it comes to this topic? Um, no, except to say like, yeah, I, I honestly will go to my grave, not really understanding some of the forces around this stuff. Particularly for me, the probably the most baffling is how so many people in public health stayed quiet. Well, Leslie, thank you for coming on to talk about this. As I told people in the uh, the intro, you're going to stay and do some bonus content about a totally unrelated matter that was discussed not on this podcast, but on my other podcast with Sarah Hader, A Special Place in Hell. Sarah and I got into a conversation about fertility and things like fertility treatments and uh, egg freezing and all of this. And we were speaking pretty off the cuff uh, and wanted to correct the, the record and um, you wanted to set me straight. So, um, no, and I, I appreciate that. No, because we weren't, we were not speaking as experts. We were talking sort of more generally. Um, I think this is in the context of talking about Louise Perry and her book about the sexual revolution and this idea that women were kind of perhaps misled about um, their own fertility. So we we were not speaking a very precise way. So we're now going to do bonus content. So any paid subscribers to this podcast, I thought chances are you also listen to the other one. So if you guys want to stick around, we're going to stop talking about COVID and, and start talking about uh, fertility for, for just a little bit. But in the meantime, Leslie, Leslie Beenan, thank you for coming on, bearing with my voice and um, I guess making me feel... Not, not better, but less guilty. How about that? Don't feel guilty. And thank you for having me on. Okay. That was my conversation with Leslie Beenan. Again, if you are listening to the free version of this podcast and want to hear the bonus content about fertility, you can go to the Substack page at megandaum.substack.com and support the show by becoming a paying subscriber. Once you do that, the longer episode will be right there for you to listen to. Leslie Beenan is a veterinarian and a professor at the Oregon Health Sciences University, Portland State University School of Public Health. She has studied and written about zoonotic diseases that spread from wildlife to humans, including rabies, tuberculosis, Hendra virus, and others. Maybe we'll have to have her back on sometime to talk about those viruses. She teaches courses on global health, writing, and other topics. She has published more than 30 op-eds on COVID policy since the beginning of the pandemic. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. I'll be back next week, hopefully, if I survive, with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>